Uh, Good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we are uh, wrapping up our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you want to turn there, it's on page 10 there in your order of worship. And if you remember way back before the uh, invasion of Ukraine, way back before a historic Supreme Court reversal, January 9th, we started on the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we're going to finish it. I know. Who thought? Right, we're finally here. So we've been talking in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's talking to those, we'll say, are in God's family, those who rest in God's gracious approval. We've seen that it's wisdom to live in that grace, but we have also seen that we have this inner voice, this inner critic in our heads, this voice of foolishness who who questions God's kindness doubts God's approval over us, and stops us from living in joy. Then last week, we encountered this amazing idea that God will actually hold us accountable for our joy. It's a different way to look at judgment. Not God's going to get you for that, but God really holds you accountable to be joyful because He's empowered your joy. In all the faces of the challenges of life under the sun, a phrase Ecclesiastes used to kind of wrap up all the frustrations of living as broken people in a broken world. And all of that were to stand firm in the joy of God. We're actually told, if you remember last week's passage, we're actually to rebel against the voice of the fool in our head, the fears, the insecurities, because they want to rule us, and so we are to rebel against them and instead walk in the joy God promises us. Because God gives us the voice of wisdom. It anchors us in His joy and reminds us of His grace, the deep joy that comes from His approval. Now here we are at the very last of the book. This pastor philosopher sort of signs his name to it, and then he gives us the final answer for how God's people are to live under the sun. So if you would, would you turn with me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, looking at verses 9 through 14. If you don't have your own Bible, you can look at the, at the uh, chair Bible there in front of you. It's found on page 524. And if you don't have your own Bible, please take that one home with you as our gifts. <clears throat> Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word, we ask, Lord, that You would indeed open this text up to us. Lord, once again, would you give us truth for our growth and for our transformation that we might know this joy you promise, that we might taste and see that you were good. We ask, Father, that you would help us to see the truth of who we are and the truth of what you've done for us in your Son. 
God, we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us today through your word. We ask this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. And so we see here today that truth, this passage tells us, is a delight to be received from God. And so instead of an exhausting search, we rest in God's simple answer that we were always meant for him. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When you receive God's delightful answer, it eases your searching and it roots you in joy. We're going to see that the knowledge we receive from God is delightful, unlike our exhausting search on our own, because being human means we were meant for God. We jump right in here in verses 9 and 10. We see that knowledge is a delightful truth. So this pastor philosopher sort of is signing his name here. And he, he, wants, he wants us to see the great care that he took to assemble, to systematize, and then to give away knowledge. He wanted God's people to have knowledge. He wanted us to know things. You know, one of the persistent negative stereotypes about Christians, you've probably heard it, is that we're uneducated. Or even worse, and one of my favorites is, is the slander that, you know, well, the more you get educated, you know, especially in science, <laughs> the harder it is to be a Christian, you know. So I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis who pointed out that the enormity of the universe and the relative tininess of our planet had been known for centuries, yet nobody until the mid-20th century thought that had anything to do or any kind of trouble to our faith because that took an alternate religion called scientific materialism to challenge another religion. But that, that's for free. That's a different text. So if you look at the historical reality, though, wherever Christians went, they built schools and they taught people to read because God wants us to have knowledge, not just any knowledge. Look at how he phrases it in verse 10 here. Words of delight and words of truth. Notice that truth is something received. It's not innate. We have to learn it. It has to be revealed to us. It's a delightful truth, we're told. As God's people learn more about God, and as we learn more about His world, it increases our delight. It increases our joy. So we want to know things. Oh, kids here, boys and girls, students. I know school can be a drag, right? And you hear this, you're like, I don't want to see God in my school. I know, I'm, Pastor Sean is actually looking to maybe get another degree, and at this point, I'd have to write a book-length research paper. I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I get it. But this text reminds us that the more we learn about anything, the more we learn of God who made everything. And we can make it a delight. It can bring us joy if we let it, because when you receive God's delightful answer, it eases your searching. And it roots you in joy. And then we see in verses 11 and 12 that we need that kind of joy because sometimes learning hurts. Verse 11 tells us that these delightful, truth, these delightful truthful words, he says that they're goads. He says that they're nails. So a goad is, is a cattle prod. Long stick, iron stake, livestock is going in a direction you don't want to go. You poke them. It hurts, so they go away from it. They're not going fast enough. They're like your kids in front of you when you're shopping. You poke them, and they go faster. Don't do that. He's just a child abuse. No, no, no. Nails. They can, this can be nails, like you know what a nail is, but it can also be the word that, they, that these shepherds would have used for their tent pegs to keep their tent secure in the wind. 
And so we've got these shepherds out there with their goads, with their tent pegs, where they use pain. They use discomfort to guide their sheep. And so it tells us that God's truth here sometimes uses pain, sometimes uses discomfort to guide us and to give us a firm foundation under the sun. Those of you who do make a habit of reading the Bible, have you ever read something that kind of challenged you? You ever read something that you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to. It stings like a prod, and it stabilizes like a nail. And you may have noticed as I'm talking here, I switched from truth to talking about God's Word, to talking about the Bible. Here's why. I want you to, let's look together at the second part of verse 11, where it says that these words of truth, that they are given by one shepherd. Notice the capitalization there on the word shepherd. There is no uppercase or lowercase in ancient Hebrew. This is a translator's judgment call, but we have from very ancient tradition, like pre-Christ rabbinical commentaries on Ecclesiastes, going back that far, say this is referring to the Lord God himself, and so they capitalize it. From very ancient times, it's been understood that God is the shepherd who gives truth, who uses his word to prod us and to stabilize us. And to a culture like ours, where individual autonomy is the most sacred and assumed belief, the idea that God would prod us, that God would use pain or discomfort to change our direction, that's kind of offensive, isn't it? Who does he think he is? That God would dare contradict us? We're in charge. We're the masters of our fate. That's forbidden under the sun. And even some of us in church world, we, we chafe at that idea, don't we? You know, there's an older movie that came out in mid-1970s, and there was a recent remake. And like all instances of that, always see the original. Don't worry about the remake. So anyway, so The Stepford Wives came out in mid-70s. It was a Twilight Zone-esque kind of movie set in Stepford, Connecticut, where all these big shots from Manhattan moved to Connecticut. And they move in there, and all of a sudden it turns out they have perfect wives, so to speak. And in a very Twilight Zone-esque twist, it turns out they'd all been replaced by robots. And these wives would never challenge their husbands, never talk back, and serve them without question. Retired pastor Tim Keller has a great illustration of that movie about how we relate to God. He asks the question, do we want a Stepford God? See, if the idea here in verse 11 that God's word is a prod to use discomfort to change you, that bothers us? Could it be that we want a God who never challenges us, never contradicts us, serves us without question? See, the voice of our inner fool in our heart wants us to have a step for God. But the voice of wisdom longs for the shepherd's correction. And then we get to verse 12. Look at me at verse 12. It says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And all the students say, Amen. <laughs> right? Now, this is not the, you know, get on your rural southern as best you can and go, you don't need to learn that nothing but the Bible. It's not what he's saying here. Rather, this is saying, don't be under the sun and assume there are no answers. Instead of submitting as God's creatures to His truth, 
Our culture values seeking. Our culture under the sun values open-mindedness. And that sounds so good, right, to value open-mindedness. It sounds so reasonable. Who could possibly be against that? But it has a dark side, doesn't it? Under the sun doesn't want to find answers. Our culture loves open-mindedness, but does not love certainty, does it? Our culture loves a seeker of truth, but our culture does not accept a finder of truth. And so if we claim to have an answer, we're all of a sudden closed-minded. And it's just exhausting to live in that, isn't it? It's a frustrating way to live. That's what verse 12 is telling us. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're tracking with me. So look at the bottom of page 10 in the bulletin there at your verse 12. Here's how we put it for you. Be careful around the kind of words that offer no answers. Always looking for answers but never finding them will make you grumpy. Boys and girls, you ever play hide and seek? Have you ever been the youngest, littlest one, and all of a sudden you're it? And all the big kids are better at hiding, right? And so after a while, you can't find anybody, and you're just upset, and you're bored, you don't want to do this anymore, and you're just in a foul mood. That's exactly what God's telling us here, boys and girls. Constantly looking for answers that are always hiding, never being allowed to find them. It's no fun. It'll make you grumpy. But the good news is that God gives us answers. Remember, he wants us to have delightful words of truth. He doesn't hide them from us. We're allowed to seek truth because he wants us to find truth. You hunger for it because you were meant to have it and be satisfied by it. Because when you receive God's delightful answer, it eases your searching and it roots you in joy. And then we get to verse 13 and 14 where we, his big conclusion, I'm going to, uh, spoiler alert, here's his big conclusion. Humans are creatures. That's his answer. After all this time, after all the experiments, all the begging us to believe we have God's approval, all the admonishing us to live in joy, here is his conclusion. Look with me at verse 13. It says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. These are the words of a judge in a courtroom. Here's the verdict. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. How's our inner fool doing with that kind of prodding? That's it. All the, the, the answer to life. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Whatever. His, here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. I want us all to look at their verse 13. It says this. It says, here is the answer to everything. Live like Adam and Eve were meant to, walking with God in daily life. That is what God created us to be. Now, let me show you how I got there with that. So we've just been told not to seek knowledge just for the sake of seeking knowledge, but rather we're to question under the sun in the hopes of actually finding truth, of finding an answer. And here is the answer to it all. He tells us, this is it. Now, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're in conversation with people you love who are not Christians, you may chafe at the exclusivity claims of the Bible. Like right here where it says, I have the answer. Or when Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one is able to come to the Father except through me. You may chafe at that, but please have the intellectual honesty to recognize the Bible does claim those exclusive. That's not something people have added onto it. It claims to have the answer. And right here, that answer is to fear God and keep his commandments. 
in all of its prodding discomfort, we are told the answer to the frustrations is to fear God. Psalm 111.10, a famous verse, tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This fear is the fountain from which wisdom flows. And our hearts right here, right now, are not rejoicing because we don't understand the fear of God, do we? It's a weird phrase. We settle for the dread of God instead in church world. It's a sinful fear, and we settle for that because we're overwhelmed at the judgment of the cross. When we hear the gospel, we're overwhelmed at our own sinfulness. The cross of Jesus, in a sense, looks at us and says, you aren't enough. There's nothing you can do to fix yourself. It's a terrifying judgment. We behold Jesus on the cross for us and we see the reality of the the verse we memorize so easily. The wages of sin is death. We see Jesus paying those wages and it terrifies our inner fool. And then when we get forgiveness, when we understand forgiveness, it then all, all of a sudden lifts us up in God's approval that we have approval through Jesus. And at the same time, it humiliates not humbles. I'm using the word humiliate. It humiliates us because it took the death of Jesus to heal us, to fix us, to forgive us. We were that messed up. See, and in that humility, we tremble at how powerless and yet how blessed we are. That's the fear of God. When you marvel at how precarious grace feels, because of your weakness. And yet you see how strong grace is because it's not about your strength. It's about the strength of a fearful God. When you live in that kind of precariousness emotion, that's the fear of God. The fear of God leads us to joy because we see that we've done nothing. And again, hear what I'm saying. It should feel, not is, it should feel precarious. It should feel kind of like a fluke. It should make us feel like a spiritual imposter syndrome, like I didn't, I'm not good enough to be here. Someone's going to find out and kick me out any moment now. Okay, that's the fear of the Lord because you're not good enough. You should be kicked out, but you're not because of everything someone else did. And you're like, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. I shouldn't be here. Exactly. It's supposed to be a little frightening. That's the fear of the Lord. And in that fear, we joyfully then do his will, it tells us. We keep his commandments which in context is the myriad upon myriad imperatives, commands, thou shalt. We've gotten since chapter 9 where he tells us you will rejoice. You will enjoy life. You will go out and have fun in the gifts I give you. You will. You will do these things over and over again. He's told us to rest in my approval and live in joy. Those are the specific commandments we're supposed to keep here. Enjoy life now because of God's approval. But wait, there's more. Who, at the very beginning, walked in God's approval and kept his commandments? It's Adam and Eve in the garden. And what theologians call the cultural mandate, Genesis 2.15, we'll throw it up here for you. Look what God told them. He said, the Lord God took the man, which is the Hebrew word Adam. So the Lord God took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice those two words, to work it and to keep it. We could also translate that to serve and protect, almost like a police officer. But it's in, throughout the Old Testament, these two things put together are often used for the idea of worship. 
It was the duty of humanity to serve and keep the garden. And notice, they didn't have to be told to fear. It was their default setting before the fall. And now what we have here is Genesis 2.15 is restated for those under the fall, under the sun, restated. Now, instead of work and keep, we fear and keep. We're supposed to go back to what Adam and Eve were like. We fear and we keep. And finally, I want you to look at the very last phrase of verse 13. The ESV has the whole duty of man. The word duty is not there. It's put in to make better English. A really rigid, bad English translation is this is the totality of humanity or of humankind, of mankind. In other words, this is what people were meant for. We are creatures meant to worship and serve our God. We are creatures who are meant to fear Him. This is what it means to be human. This is the answer. We're light bulbs. But under the sun, we seek everything else but that electrical socket. Maybe we can use candles. Maybe we can rub some potatoes together. Maybe we can use a static charge. Anything except the power in that electrical socket we were created for. But when we rest in God's approval... Once we live in that abject gratitude for our rescue, what the Bible here calls fear, we are a plugged-in, juiced-up light bulb. And I ain't talking about one of those weird, twisty, curly, fluorescent-looking things. I'm talking like an old-school, 150-watt, blinding thing, putting out so much heat you can cook a cupcake on it in your easy-bake oven. One of those things. Oh, dear Christian, we need that fear of the Lord. Most, I'm not saying all, always, you should always avoid all, okay. Most of our anxieties and our issues come from a lack of this fear. When we fear God alone, we no longer walk in the fear of everything else under the sun. You know what I'm talking about. What will people think? Who will mock? Who will complain? Who will not like me? Who will hurt me? All of those fears are released in the fear of God. Now, since this fear is the answer, I'm, I'm desperate for you to grasp this. So I'm gonna, I want to look at an event from the life of our Lord Jesus. Um, there's a story told in, one of, in the Gospels where a woman of ill repute had somehow received, experienced forgiving grace from him. We're not told how, just that it happened. And then what she does in the face of taboo, in the face of social custom, she invades a dinner party cleans his feet with her own tears, wipes them down with her own hair, pours expensive perfume on them, right there at the dinner table. It was scandalous. People were shocked, and as the guests began to gossip, mock, and judge, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 7, says this. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he is forgiven little, loves little. This is a picture of the fear of God. This self abasing worship is what the fear of God looks like. And it is the answer to our frustrations under the sun. 
when we no longer fear all this stuff, but we fear God alone. And so we worship him in the freedom of his approval, not seeking and searching for the approval of others like you know takes up most of our time. And to make sure we get what he's saying, he ends in verse 14. Look at me at verse 14. He reminds us that God will bring every deed into judgment. It's the last words of the whole book, and he's using the exact same phrase from chapter 9, verse 7, where he says, God has already approved your deeds. So he's reminding us, this is a positive judgment for those who fear God. He's already approved you. Walk in that approval. Approval. Because when you receive God's delightful answer, it eases your searching, and it roots you in joy. See, that answer he gives us in verse 13, fear God, keep his commandments. It's not just a restatement of humanity's purpose in Genesis 2.15. It's a promise that what Adam had and then lost was already being restored by the time Solomon wrote this, and then we now know it's been completely restored by the life death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord, we're brought into union with him. And so like Adam and like Jesus, the second Adam, we can have the fear of God now as our default and our joy. You know, we read these Advent texts as, as when Advent comes so quickly, we, we forget to actually read them. You know, you know, one of the most common texts that they would read, that we read about the coming Messiah, it says, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. That Jesus Christ was one in his earthly life, delighted, was completely fulfilled in the fear of the Lord. And hear this, dear Christian, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're brought into union with him. So what's true of Jesus is true of you, and your delight then is in the fear of the Lord. The answer that everyone's seeking to life is right here in union with Christ. How have we, it changes if we actually believe that? Instead of just giving it the Presbyterian nod grunt. Mm, mm. See, united to Jesus by faith, you can see yourself as you really are. Broken, rebellious, sinful. But forgiven, approved, and empowered to rejoice. Now, this glorious, freedom-bringing fear of God is available to you. You can grasp for out there for all the answers to the junk in life or right here, right now. You can cast off everything you feared. All the stuff you thought Christianity was, you can just cast all that off and just place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And don't wait. You can do it now. And you can walk in this delightful fear. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your text this morning and we admit that part of our heart wants something more than to fear you and to keep your commandments. We want to do something. We want to put our own skin in the game because we don't want to rest in Jesus' skin that is the game. So Lord, I pray you'll forgive us for our arrogance. And instead, Lord, would you help us to cast ourselves upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel? Would you help us to cling to him as the life preserver in this sea of uncertainty under the sun? 
and united to him, Lord, may we swim in the delight of the fear of you. We pray that you would do this, Lord. By your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.